This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. racism that we talk about on these airwaves. We talk about institutional racism, the, the sort of interpersonal racism, anti-blackness generally. One element of racism that doesn't really get a whole lot of play is that which is literally baked into the air and the water and the land around us. I'm talking about environmental racism. Uh, my guest for this hour is Adam Mahoney, who is a, an author uh, and a reporter with Capital B News. And this is somebody who has been really... Um, pounding the pavement, to use a very journalistic term, I guess, uh, but really intently focusing on issues of environmental racism and injustice. And it is our pleasure to bring him here today to the Larry Daniel Favors Show. Uh, Adam Mahoney, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. As am I, as am I. I, I got to be honest with you. Um, I came to Capital B a bit late. You guys are a, a more recent entry to the black journalistic, journalistic space. Talk with us about what Capital B is and who is your target audience? Yeah, um, so Capital B is actually a first of its kind local national nonprofit news organization. Um, an all black staff that centers black voices across the country. Uh, we have one newsroom in Atlanta right now that's doing local reporting. We're building out a couple more in the South and I'm actually on the national team. So this is was really exciting when I saw the announcement come out. I didn't really believe it was going to have an all black staff. I was like, come on now, we're really <laughs> going to be all black because that's what we would want to see happen in a black news space. But it, it sounds as though you have been able to maintain that commitment. Uh, can you talk with us just a little bit about what the rollout was like? You know, we, we hear a lot about uh, black magazines, black news uh, outlets that that end up not being able to, to manage, to maintain, to expand, you know, uh, advertisement, all of that. I really don't want to spend too much time on that, but if you could just talk with us a little bit about what the rollout for your organization was like, because this is a unique way of engaging with and presenting news to traditionally marginalized audiences. Yeah, I think Capital B is working so far because of the intention that our, our co-founders put into the organization. Um, they started with this idea in 2020 and spent almost two full years, uh, you know, talking to funders and making sure we were able to stay afloat, you know, at a not as a nonprofit and, and not having to rely on, on clicks and, and different things like that. Um, and, you know, in the industry, in the journalism industry, there are black folks everywhere. It's just about us getting the, the opportunities and the resources um, to do the important work that, you know, we need to do and Capital B is allowed myself and our growing staff to do that so far, which is really exciting. That's fantastic. I became a subscribing member uh, really quickly and early on, and I've really enjoyed the coverage and, and the way that you guys approach a lot of these issues. Uh, let's shift now more more formally or more thoroughly on the issue of environmental racism and environmental justice. There are some people in the audience, uh, many millions of us in the Urban View land, but there are some people who have not heard of what environmental racism is or can't quite really define it in meaningful ways. Can you help us unpack that? When we hear the phrase environmental racism, I mean, aren't we all breathing air? Aren't we all drinking water? What do we mean when we use that phrase? Yeah, so I, I think I like to come to it from a, an angle of environmental justice, which to me, environmental justice is basically, 
you know, all of the things that we as human beings need to survive, right? So that's access to air, um, clean water, shelter, housing. Um, and environmental racism comes in, particularly in this country when we look at, you know, a history of, of racist policies that make all of those things inaccessible for black and brown folks. So we, we think of redlining um, in the early 20th century, which concentrated black and brown folks in community or in cities toxic corridors, um, made it more difficult for us to, to have housing, um, safe and affordable housing, and how that also relates to, you know, having clean water. So in these communities, a lot of, even today, a lot of these communities might have lead water lines. So are drinking contaminated water, mm. um, are closer to polluting sites. So in the United States, Black folks are 75% more likely than white folks to be living next to an industrial polluting site, which oh, then- I'm sorry, what? what, what? what? <laughs> 75% more likely, yes. And, and when we get into even, you know, more concrete terms around like oil wells, black folks are, are three times as likely to be living next to, to polluting oil wells than white folks um, in the United States. And obviously those things and affect our health um, when we're thinking of things like cancer, heart disease, respiratory diseases, even things like diabetes, um, you know, it, it all relates to each other. Though that I'm still stuck on 75% and, and three times more likely because my mind is breaking and sometimes that happens in the middle of an interview and I have to gather myself. So you're gonna have to give me a minute, brother. I'm sorry, 75% yeah. more likely to live in a polluted environment space. When I think about that and you layered on very well, uh, the connection that our environment has to our health, it, makes a lot more sense to me that we are experiencing health disparities, not just because of the foods that we eat, not just because we're also being weathered down by, by, by racism and anti-blackness, but if I'm living in an environment that's 75% more likely or times more likely, or whatever the statistic you just rolled out and it just sort of rolled out the tongue all easily and, and, and you know, landed like a thud, it seems to me that at every point that we interface, not just with society, but with any element whatsoever, this is one of those areas where we see a real concrete example of how racism, uh, white power has been built into the infrastructure of the country such that we, it's even feasible to have numbers that disparate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and like I said, I, I'm biased, but I think the environment and environmental justice impacts every facet of our lives, right? So if you are living in a polluted community, one year, the level of high paying um, and safe jobs are at, at a lower level, but also you're going to be sick, right? You're more likely to be sick. You're more likely to, to miss work. Then um, that's going to impact, impact your level of employment. And I actually just finished a project a couple of months ago that looked at the connections between community violence and pollution. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research studies that show that high levels of pollution obviously impact your brain development and then that impacts um, your decision-making processes. Um, so there's been studies in Los Angeles that show them like days of the highest pollution. Those are the days of the highest community violence, gun violence. Um, wow. Yeah, so, so is you know, that it's why deep, in the like summer, like, 
I'm thinking about my block and bed style. Is that why when the summertime comes out, I get nervous? Because I know the sounds of summer are helicopters, gunshots, and perhaps a bird or two chirping. Um, but that's exactly. not just an anecdote. You're saying that there is concrete data that supports that. The idea that the hotter it is, the more intently you're experiencing the environment, the more your rates of violence go up. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that out because, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me doing this work is we we know all of these things to be true. Right. You you are able to, to lay that out perfectly. We know these we know our experiences. Um, and now in the EJ space, you know, finally, the science and data is catching up to hmm. to black folks lived experiences. So, you know, hopefully down the line, that will help in, in changing them. Can you help us to understand what polluted communities look like? I mean, are we talking rural black communities? Is this an urban thing? I, I know in the Bronx, uh, there's issues with buses that idle. You know, in, in certain parts of you know New York City, uh, the buses always seemed to be idling by our kids. <laughs> like uh, we always have highways in our spaces. But are we talking? Is this more of a rural issue? Is this a Middle America issue? Do we see racism or environmental injustice showing up in cities? Where where does your your work show you that we're seeing this most prevalently it's everywhere right so if we're in a big city if we're thinking la um, chicago new york city where black folks are located they are um, more likely to be around these environmental stressors like you said so closer to diesel pollution closer to living the highways um, industrial sites but even in rural america um, or if we're thinking of, of semi-rural in places of texas um, Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana, where we have the biggest concentration of our oil production, mm. Black folks are living next to massive oil refineries, um, even outside of the city. So the issues, they present themselves differently, uh, but they have similar effects. How did you get drawn to this area? Because you, you write about this extensively for Capital B. How did this become a passion area for you? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I came about it from a, a roundabout way. I was originally doing reporting on police. Um, I was living out in Chicago, so I was reporting on CPD and in prisons in Illinois. Um, but I wanted to do reporting that was more uh, impactful for me and my family. So I'm, I'm actually from the Harbor area of Los Angeles. I grew up in Harbor City in Wilmington, um, right outside of the port of Los Angeles, which is North America's highest polluting port in the country. Um, wow. I grew up 100 feet from an oil well, um, less than a mile away from an oil refinery. So, so these issues deeply impacted me. I wanted to be in a position where, you know, I could answer questions that I had as a young person um, and questions that people I care about um, are currently facing hmm. and having. You know, I had a, a conversation a couple of years ago and it was right as, you know, the coronavirus was getting started. And I was like, I don't trust, the, you know, the government. I'm concerned about, you know, and, you know, I was worried about a whole lot of things. And the response from this other person was, well, I mean, white people get corona, too. The white man ain't going to let something happen to them. Like, you know, just follow what they do for the white folks. And I was like. I don't think that logic tracks, but when I try to apply that logic to uh, this area, I would hear that same person say something to the lines of, you know, we all have to breathe air. There's white po folks who live in Los Angeles. You know, we, they wouldn't want to, they wouldn't let the pollution get too out of control because that's going to impact them too. Their water is going to be dirty too. They're going to be going through a drought too. Shouldn't black people be getting the benefits of white people caring about the environment? What would you say to something like that? I, I think that's when class comes into this um, pretty strongly. You know, 
there's the term sacrifice zones um, in environmental justice. So that means in cities, um, there are communities that are basically put up for sacrifice in terms of environmental pollutants. Um, so we look at folks as disposable entire communities sometimes. And while they are most um, predominantly black and brown, of course, they're going to be, you know, white folks, poor white folks living in these communities. Um, so I, I think it's important in this space to think very critically about the intersections of, of race and class, mm. even though race does show up more, most prominently. Um, that does not mean that poor white folks aren't impacted as well. Right. Can we unpack this this phrase a little bit? I had to write it down. Sacrifice zones, that feels very Game of Thronesian to me, <laughs> very antiquities. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, crusades type of, of language. Where did this phrase come from? And is this something that is this something that you are, are promoting? Or is this a regularly understood term within the environmental justice community? Yeah, this is a term that has been in use in the EJ community for about 30 um, some odd years. Mm, mm, mm. And it's it's deeply tied with what I mentioned earlier, like redlining. So these communities for decades now right have been mapped out to be known to be the toxic communities and, and when we look at what has changed or what has been done to reverse some of the environmental and health impacts that these communities are facing the answer is usually none to, to little um, so researchers we think of like the father of environmental justice dr um, rob bullard um, he he coined terms like this to um, define these communities in a, in a way that is, you know, that gets people questioning the situations that, that they're facing um, mm. and beginning to, to stop normalizing uh, the experiences that they're, they're living through. So how do I know if I live in a sacrifice zone? Because the phrase is very effective. It, it won't get out of my head. How do I know if I live in one, if I'm just in the same black area that everybody I know and love is also in? What are the telltale signs uh, that would help, you know, the audience understand, oh, no, sis, we in a sacrifice zone. This is a problem. How would you know? Um, you know, if we're just looking, you know, physically at your landscape, if you are in a place that maybe has warehouses or or industrial polluting sites so power plants or refineries the things like you mentioned diesel pollution if you're a place where you have buses um, constantly running through or, or big rig trucks things like that if you're in a place where your housing stock is is older um mm. meaning you know there's probably lead paint lead pipes um in your homes wow. those those are some of the big telltale signs but there's actually Interestingly enough, the White House a couple of months ago released a, they call it a climate and economic justice screening tool. So you can put your address into, into this database um, and it will pop up, your census track will pop up and it'll tell you if you're living in a disadvantaged census track and it'll outline the climate impacts of where you're living, um, the economic impacts, the pollution impacts, health burdens, all of those things. Um, and it's a, it's a tool I've, I've begun to use in my reporting, but like I said, it's just released a couple months ago, um, and we will see what comes from it. 
Shayla, I want to get that tool out. If you could do a quick search and find that, I want to tweet that out because I got some questions <laughs> because, you know, it, yeah. it's one thing to think about um, environmental justice or environmental racism as sort of a we're all in this together because we all need to breathe and eat and drink. But the reality is, like every other area uh, where we're dealing with issues of racial disparity, it's just that is just not the case. And so if we're having, uh, if we have phrases that can describe, we've got sacrifice zone as a concept. Can you talk with us about how having these sorts of concepts, having these types of tools, what impact do you think, actually let's separate the tool from the concept because if the concept is 30 years old, let's take a look back. Let's do a little Sankofa for a minute. What has using phrases like that sacrifice zones, how has it either injected energy into the environmental justice movement? How has it raised awareness? Because this is not just a show that listens or an audience that listens. We also are active. And so we need to figure out how we are going to activate around what is happening because I suspect that most of the audience is living in one of or near or has family members in one of these sacrifice zones. How has this type of terminology and the, um, I, I, for me as, as a non-EJ person, I'm not an activist in this space, but I have seen a real growth, it looks like a growth from the outside, in black voices showing up in environmental justice conversations. How have these concepts and that reality sort of merged to have whatever impact they're having? What is the impact that they're having on, on these issues now? And how are you seeing that shift as, as we get a little bit wiser about what's happening with the environment. Mm -hmm. But when we're thinking historically about the concept, I think, you know, this, these languages and now these more general understandings have helped activists and advocates um, advocate for these issues to, you know, whether it be government agencies or pollution regulation boards, to the people in charge of making decisions uh, around folks' access to unhealthy environment. I think it has been super beneficial in, in that regard. But when we look at community members um, most directly impacted by these issues, there has been sort of a, a disconnect, right? And, and getting folks to, one, acknowledge these concepts as a reality and also even just meeting folks where they're at. And I think that's beginning to change now, right? With a bigger national importance and focus on environmental justice. Uh, it has become a term that is in the mainstream. Um, you know, climate change now is an accepted thing across the country. So, so folks know these issues exist. Um, and I think it's super important, like I said, for, for communities directly impacted to not only have these concepts uh, or a deeper understanding about these concepts, but be able to, to connect them to their, you know, their daily life. Let's talk about that part of it, the connecting of these concepts to daily life. I have two questions for you. The first is, uh, what have been some of the environmental changes that you've observed in black communities that concern you the most? Let's start there. I have a tendency to give 10 part questions. So I'm trying to stop myself from doing that right now. <laughs> what have been some of the changes you've observed uh, that concern you the most within our communities? Yeah, I think. I mean, my biggest concern, which I, I'm actually going to be spending the next year or so at Capital B focused on this issue um, specifically is, is what they're calling or what academics and, and social scientists are calling the, the reverse migration. Um, mm. So that is all of the country's biggest coastal um, West and East Coast coastal cities and Midwestern cities. So we're thinking of New York, L.A., uh, 
Chicago, they're hemorrhaging black folks, right? Losing tens, if not hundreds of thousands of black people. Yeah. Uh, and a majority of those black folks are moving to the South. Uh, so, so from a climate change perspective, that's concerning. Um, from, a, from a social Why? perspective, I understand. Well, it's concerning because it basically means black folks are running towards disaster, right? When we, when we think of the South oh, in terms of snap. climate change, severe weather events, hurricanes, um, rising temperatures, and even with the growth of these cities, that comes the growth of industrial pollutants. So wow. from a climate change perspective, that is concerning. But I understand there are levels to it, right? And layers to it. And, and Black folks moving to the South, they're moving to the South for better jobs, affordable housing, and also to just be surrounded by more Black folks, which means you're going to be feeling safer, right, in your community, typically. Uh, but this issue of, of climate migration, for the most part, has been looked at from a perspective of white climate migrants. Um, mm. So as Black folks are moving to the South, a lot of white folks are actually leaving the South and moving to the Pacific Northwest, which is considered a climate haven. Um, so the safest places in terms of climate change in the Damn coming it. decade. You mean like Oregon, which started out with some of the racist history, like that's where we should be going to be safe from climate? Damn it. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. It's, it's it's a difficult, difficult situation to navigate. And, you know, it's one of the things, like I said, that we're going to be looking at uh, very, very specifically and intentionally over the next year and trying to understand the motives behind folks moving to the South and also like the considerations that people are making for their families' futures. Hmm. That's that answers in part almost, I think, my next question, which is how do you convince black people uh, to care about environmental justice in meaningful ways? Now, I, you know, I have my little granola girl crew and, you know, we, we kind of the tree hugger groups, you know, members of our respective groups. And that's good. Uh, when we talk about, you know, what environmental justice means in terms of food access and in terms of, of energy uh, diversification, we kind of sometimes get blank stares. I am not an equal justice activist in that way. I'm an activist when it comes to racial justice, voting rights, uh, civic engagement, things of that nature. But EJ is not a space that I fully sit in it with any real expertise. How do you mm -hmm. convince our community for whom environmental justice is like, come on, sis, I got police brutality. I got like employment discrimination. I got gendered. I mean, you really want me to care about the air I'm breathing right now too. I'm breathing, ain't I? What am I supposed to do about this? How do you convince us to care when this is not an issue that we often have people like you helping us mm -hmm. understand? Mm -hmm. I mean, first, I think it is okay not to to deeply care about it right now because we have all of those different issues um, mm -hmm. and, and intersecting inequalities, uh, you know, compounding our communities. But if you take a step back, you can easily realize that environmental justice plays a role in all of these issues, right? So you mentioned police brutality um, and these quote unquote sacrifice zones. That's where police are most heavily concentrated, right? Because um, that these are the poor communities. Um, and like I mentioned before, community violence and pollution have a, a deep connection. Uh, and when we also look at environmental justice in terms of things like jobs, like I mentioned before, if you're living in a community where the air is constantly making you sick and you're constantly losing your job because you're missing work, those two things um, are connected, right? Or if you live in a community where uh, there's this term called energy po poverty or energy burden. Um, so in black and brown communities, 
despite black and brown folks uh, having much lower emissions than white communities, they're paying more for their energy. They're paying more in energy bills. Um, that's an environmental justice issue that affects everyone, right? Because we, if you're living in a home or an apartment, you have utilities. Um, so, so like I said, all of these issues are connected. It just requires us to take a step back. But I'm also of the mindset of, even if you're not calling yourself an environmental uh, advocate, a lot of the work around racial, racial justice or economic inequality is also combating these environmental injustices. That feels good to hear. Uh, we got to have some hope somewhere. We can all play a role and we can all play a part. Uh, let's shift to that. Have yeah. you, you know, you're, you've been reporting on this for a while. Um, your articles seem to, to place you all over the place. You said you are with the national team. What does that vantage mm -hmm. point uh, give you in terms of insight about the coordinated responses that we're seeing coming from black spaces where, you know, environmental justice has a lot of, of, tangents, a lot of arms, there are a lot of organizations. Who are some of the key persons or, or key organizations or key movements that you see coming from within Black communities that are Black-led um, that are going to, you think, perhaps really be a, a benefit in a way that is meaningful uh, when it comes to securing more equitable access to clean air, water, and all the rest? Mm -hmm. you know, like you mentioned, um, these issues present themselves differently in, in different parts of the country. But when I'm thinking of, you know, in the South, um, so folks facing injustices around oil um, production, a big organization that has been doing this work for 30 some odd years is the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, led by Dr. Beverly Wright, who has, you know, been involved in the EJ movement at a federal and a local level since the 80s, um, wow. you know, they're working towards what we call a just transition. So that means moving away from our fossil fuel use, our fossil fuel production, um, so oil and, and coal and things like that, and turning these sites of, of fossil fuel production into sites of clean energy. Um, so whether that be uh, building out different things like electric vehicles or um, wind farms, things like that. That's going on in the South. When we're looking at the Midwest, um, from Detroit to Chicago, we have Black EJ leaders who are fighting to get their lead water lines replaced. So Chicago actually has the most lead water lines in the country. Um, Whoa. Michigan, obviously Flint <laughs> wow. is still reeling from the water crisis of eight years ago. There are still over 2000 homes that don't have clean water in Flint today. Um, wow. When we're looking at the West Coast, it's like a convergence of these issues. Um, so I think that this work is being done everywhere and whether or not these, these organizations look at it as connected, um, the way that they're presenting themselves is, and it's, exciting for me from a national perspective to look at all of this work even amidst all of the the deeply <laughs> unjust environmental situations that folks are being put in that's a great segue to my, my final question for you and i do hope we can get you to come back i've been 
wanting to have somebody who could understand these issues from a more um, nationwide perspective. And, and because you, you're mm -hmm. very prolific in what you write, you have been uh, someone that we've had our eye on for a little while. And I wanted to really have this first conversation, see how I'm speaking that into existence, you already coming back. I want to have this first conversation sure. to really just sort of lay out the landscape of what it is we're talking mm -hmm. about so that we're, we're, we have uh, more of a grasp of what the issues are and the scope and the magnitude. Uh, but you said that you're, uh, that gives you a little bit of hope. Do you have hope? And how can we end this conversation with a space of optimism? What do you, I don't want you to predict anything. I mean, you're a reporter. Reporters mm -hmm. tend to resist having to be predictive in those ways. But what sources of hope do you gain as you look at what's happening? You see the bad, the ugly uh, all the time. Do you see anything out there, in addition to the folks that you mentioned who are doing some of this work, uh, that gives you a sense of optimism about our ability to be not just sort of constantly catching up to how bad is the environment today, but really getting a hold of what's happening and shift the culture and mindset in this country so that we are an environmental justice populace who centers that in all of our policy, or at least mm -hmm. some of our policy. Yeah, I think, you know, I tend, even as a national reporter, to, to shy away from federal policy is the the be all end all of this work and the thing that actually gives me the most hope is you know on a community on a grassroots level the work that's being done even outside of you know these bigger environmental justice organizations that i've mentioned just in communities that are doing things like building out community gardens um educating around access to to healthy food and how that relates to the land that we're on or or communities that are doing you know, tree planting is sometimes controversial, but but doing the good work of, of tree planting and and um, building out community events for folks to understand how green space um, plays a role in our, our physical health, plays a role in urban heat and climate change and all of those different things. So just just looking at it from a community building perspective, right, that, you know, climate change really shows us that we're all in this together. Um, I think a lot more than other issues. Um, Cause like you said, even when we're thinking of, of white communities, like they are, they're breathing the same air as us. Um, they're drinking the same water as us and, and understanding that these issues don't just stop at a census track line or at a city line or a community line. Um, so I think folks around the country are understanding that and, it, and it's helping build coalitions uh, even beyond environmental issues, which is, is super exciting. That is, and, and this is just another shameless plug. Black people fill out the daggone census. Like, can we just stop it already? We keep complaining. We know we more than 13%. I right, prove it, fill out the census. And it's not just for us to get our numbers accurately reported. It's so that when reporters like uh, like our guests today are doing the work of, of trying to figure out where the hotspots are, they use census data. When people make investment decisions, they use census data. When they gotta figure out where to send the resources to clean up your sacrifice zone, Census data plays a role. Uh, so thank you for that. I know that was not at all what you plan on coming here <laughs> to talk about, but I can never miss an opportunity to promote black people showing up on the census. Uh, Adam Mahoney, you are a real thank gift to our community. I'm really grateful. And, and I want to thank you for the Appreciate way that you it. approach uh, environmental justice issues. I am so grateful for the work that Capital B is doing. I love that they do have Capital B as a concept. I've been doing that since I was in college, got in trouble for it because I'm old. Um, but I really appreciate how you've been approaching this. Thank you for 
for helping us unpack this. I do hope we can get you to come back. There are a number of articles you've put out that I want to sort of hyper-focus on, but really wanted to make sure we laid a solid foundation first um, for our audience. For people who are interested in learning more, either about you, the work you're doing, or Capital B, how do they do that? For people who would like to get more involved in environmental justice uh, responses in their community, what would you suggest for them? Yeah. Um, well, one, to, to follow Capital B's work, you can find us at capitalbnews.org. Um, I'm on Twitter at Adam L. Mahoney. Um, and then getting involved in your community, I think, you know, there are a lot of different ways to do that. Um, one way is really to, to get to know your neighbors um, and to understand the issues that are, are they think that are plaguing them and, and to, to build coalition around that. But you can also you know, find different chapters of environmental orgs that are, are located in cities are all around the country. Um, there's 350, which is, is building. Well, the issues, a lot of these orgs did start as white orgs, but they are building out <laughs> to become um, more racially diverse. So I'm thinking of 350, um, the Sunrise Movement, um, Sierra Club. But then there are also different different local orgs that are specific to these communities. So it, it all starts with word of mouth and then talking to your neighbors, I think. Mm, I love that. It, it's important to be people of the land, but that means we also got to remember our neighborly skills that allow us to be more communal. Um, and the more communal we approach yeah. the way we live next to each other, I think the more communally we can approach resolving some of these issues. Thank you for being with us today, Adam. It's been a real pleasure. Stay on the lookout for an email from Shayla because we're going to have to have you come back because we got a lot more we got to unpack here. Thank you. For sure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you. you.